This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. According to a study published by Louisiana State University, go Tigers! A nuclear war would devastate all of Earth's ocean and land with some effects lasting for thousands of years. Joining me for this very light conversation is Lawrence Gunther. Hey, good morning, Lawrence. How are you? Dave, I'm doing well. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving, sir. I was a bit under the weather, so I spent mine oh. in uh, isolation, getting lots of takeouts. So you know what? Oh, I uh, it's, it's actually not that different from a usual weekend in my life. So we live. Yeah. We live. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Lawrence. Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> let's, let's jump into this study. Uh, just light reading. Light reading material for you as you were yeah. going through it. What was your immediate takeaway? Well, I mean, the findings of the study are probably no surprise to anybody, but they're surprisingly stark. You know, it's not not good news, Dave. Like, they're basically saying that if there's a nuclear sort of war between two countries, whether it's, you know, Russia and NATO or India and Pakistan, I mean, there's nine countries out there that have uh, nuclear weapons. If they, if they start tossing bombs at each other, we're all going to be impacted. We're all going to suffer. We're all going to pay the price on this. And it's not a short-term thing. It's not something we're going to bounce back easily. Yeah, that, that's one of the things that has hung over the conflict in, in, in Ukraine is that is that the possibility, the saber-rattling of nuclear weapons is certainly one that at times is maybe overstated, but it hangs over the whole thing. It, it's, it's a scary situation. You mentioned yeah. a couple countries there, Lawrence. Let's try and do this together because I think off the top of my head, I can name the majority of them. Then you got to fill me in on the people, <laughs> the people who I miss here. So U.S., Russia, England, Britain. India, Pakistan, Israel, who am I missing? China, North Korea, to name two more. So uh, Iran as well. I mean, Iran's on the cusp if they haven't already got them. Israel, you named Israel. That's that's pretty much it. There's nine countries and 13,000 uh, uh, nuclear weapons. And uh, like Russia has the most at around 6,500. United States comes in a close second at 5,500. China's the third place with only 350. So then it drops way off, right? But these numbers are misleading in a sense, Dave, because they don't paint an accurate picture of the type of nuclear bombs or how these nuclear bombs have evolved over the years. I mean, it used to be, you know, we all know about Hiroshima, the, the bomb that was, uh, you know, dropped over Nagasaki and Hiroshima, those two bombs in Japan to end the Second World War. And, and they were a different type of bomb. They exploded in the air and and shot down. And um, and after that, those bombs went off, they were very destructive. They, you know, they were city bombs kind of thing to blow up a city, and they caused a lot of destruction, but not a long a lot of long term radioactive damage. And um, amazingly enough, it dissipated quite quickly. But the bombs that were then constructed, like the United States made one that was 700 times bigger than that in 1952, detonated that on a South Pacific island. And, and that one shot up into the atmosphere 25 kilometers, 25 miles into the atmosphere, a 100-mile-wide 
uh, bloom of the mushroom. So that's a, that's a huge amount of fire shooting up and spreading out. You know, it just it impressed on everybody because we saw it. We saw pictures of it in 1952, and we realized, boy, this is this is humongous. This went way up into the upper atmosphere. Russia came back a few years later, and they detonated one that was 3,000 times bigger than the ones dropped on Japan. So you can imagine how big those were. But these these type of city buster bombs, you know, what they called, you know, we'll send a missile halfway around the world and blow up your capital city, and you'll blow up our capital city. That was the Cold War. That's what we lived through in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, right up until the uh, 1990 when the USSR sort of collapsed. But what was going on in the background was the creation of all these small sort of tactical, what they call tactical uh, warheads. And that's what we're talking about now. Mm. So let's come back to the study. What does it conclude in regards to the impact on the world? Well, it, 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 the impact is related to these small tactical weapons. These are the weapons that are fired out of cannons, they're dropped out of helicopters. There's the size of a, a, a lunch bucket, the size of a... a uh, football, right? They can be shot out of cannons. And, and, but when they detonate, they detonate on the ground. And when they detonate on the ground, they throw up a big cloud of now radioactive dust into the atmosphere. And, and if you remember Chernobyl, when that uh, nuclear power plant blew, mm. it threw up a cloud of dust that drifted west, northwest, and, and over um, Finland and Sweden and Norway. And that uh, that that left an effect that lasted five years from one you know one power plant exploding. You can imagine a bunch of these tactical weapons exploding and throwing up clouds of dust. These clouds of dust will go up into the atmosphere. They'll be spread around by the winds, you know, the west wind and whatever. They'll circle the earth. We see this with volcanoes when we hear about volcanoes erupting and how the dust from these volcanoes circles over other countries, crosses oceans, causes the sun to be blotted out, causes air traffic to stop because they can't fly planes through dust because it'll clog the engines. Uh, once we lose the sun, Dave, uh, the sun rays, crops will begin to fail. Mm. The, uh, the food chain and the ocean will begin to fail. Our oceans will become sterile places. Uh, once the uh, sun is blocked, it, the temperature will drop an average of maybe seven degrees Celsius, but that's enough to trigger another ice age. If you think yeah, about the last yeah. ice age, right, 10,000 10, years ago, the temperature did not drop seven degrees Celsius on average around the globe to trigger that ice age 10,000 years ago. So this would trigger another ice age that we would have very difficult time living through. Lawrence, this may sound a little bit morbid, but I mentioned there's been saber rattling in regards to the international conflict in Ukraine right now. What kind of wake up call is that to governments, but also folks like you and me about being better prepared for these kinds of events that go beyond uh, the Cold War days of, oh, hide under your desk? Yeah, hide on your desk. Don't talk about it. It's, you know, we would all be evaporated, poof, like like what happened in Japan. It would just be shadows left on the pavement. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking a long, prolonged collapse of the food chain and everything we know. It would be a very slow and horrific, painful loss of life with lots of turmoil, lots of uh, rioting, lots of fighting for resources, limited resources. You know, this is the stuff that they make dystopian sci-fi out of, right? The the, the books and, and things we watch on movies and such. Yeah, yeah. But we need to we need to recognize that. I think we need to understand that this is this is what we're talking about, and we're not talking about it. You and I are talking about it now, but 
you know, it, the conversation seems to be right now in the media, you know, there would be a, a potential nuclear war with tactical nuclear weapons. And, and, ooh, and end of sentence, end of sentence, end of reports. All right, moving end, on. Ex- Let's go to sports with John. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like okay, it'd be a thunderstorm. You know, it'll it'll pass, right? That's the kind of coverage we're giving it. It's not that at all. Yeah, it's it's a delicate balance, right? Because you don't want to get into the fear mongering side of it, but you you in a certain degree need to be giving people some kind of usable information. Like there could be some kind of reports or PSA or small commercial about things that you could do beyond sort of saying, ah, nuclear war. What are you going to do, uh, Lawrence? Out of yeah. pure curiosity. Uh, there's a very notable piece of history not far from you in the Ottawa area in Carp, the Diefenbunker, which was built during the Cold War as a place of refuge in case of a nuclear explosion. Yeah. It's open to the public. Have you ever visited? I have, Dave. I've, I've gotten lost a little bit down in there. The, your GPS just doesn't work down there. I'll let <laughs> yeah. you know right now. <laughs> it's it's incredible. Uh, they gave me uh, they gave us access for a behind the tour uh, behind the scenes tour uh, for yeah. an AMI, AMI this week episode back in 2015. In fact, I wonder if like it's almost worth revisiting again because it was that cool and that immersive. It's like very powerful at times, but just to, to sort of think about that context. But a lot of the technology they were messing around with in the 1950s, it's really interesting stuff. It is, David. It's like walking into a science fiction movie from the 1960s and 70s, only you get to touch all the props, right? And yeah. now you're part of the movie because you're, you're living it. You're, you're, you're lying down on the bunks. You're, you're feeling the doors and, and how thick they are, the metal doors and all of that, and, and, and how cramped the quarters are. I mean, this is where the ministers of state were supposed to live. The prime minister, who at the time actually said he, he wouldn't take go down there because yeah, they were yeah. none of them were allowed to bring their families so uh, because of limited space so so he said no i'm not going i'll stay with my family but but you know that whole underground bunker that that's you know the the city bombs the the city buster bombs quickly rendered that whole underground bunker thing useless it wouldn't yeah. last right and once these one of these giant russian bombs landed on it but Dave, you know, we got rid of most of those uh, big city buster bombs when the USSR collapsed. But what we didn't get rid of was these little tiny tactical weapons. It, after the USSR collapsed, uh, the EU got rid of those small tactical weapons. They only have a hundred because they they feel like they could be easily stolen and used against them. Yeah, because they're so yeah, small. Yeah. But what... Russia has Russia has two thousand of them. At a certain point, you only you only need so many to cause mm-hmm. significant damage that, yeah. as you point out, could really be detrimental to the world. Uh, one more thought here about the Diefenbunker, Lawrence. What I really yeah. observed about sort of the 1950s and 60s culture that exists down there, an ashtray in front of every chair. Because uh, <laughs> even in times of a nuclear war, you must still have a dart or two. Uh, Lawrence, let's get to Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther, your show yeah. on AMI-audio. What's coming up on the next episode? Wow, we just had the Hunter's Moon on Thanksgiving weekend, so we talk about what is a Hunter's Moon and how does that look, you know, so we have a description on that with Miss Lily, and then uh, we're talking about cold water swimming, and I'm not talking, you know, the polar dip, you know, plunge, get out, <laughs> scream, and hop around. These are people that willingly go swimming in cold water every day and do not make a lot of sound about it, right? They just quietly go about their business, and uh, some live recording from our our last camping trip of the season. Oh my gosh, Lawrence, I always love listening to the show. Thank you for making some time for us today. I know the topic was a bit dark, but as you say, an important one to visit. So I'm glad that you and I could uh, ride shotgun on that one. 
Thanks, Dave. I appreciate you giving me the time and uh, and and thought and uh, conversation on this, man. It's good. That's Lawrence Gunther. He's the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther, which you can find Sundays at 3 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio, or you can find it on your favorite podcasting platform. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.